Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santi, and today is going to be, um, I think, a real treat. I've got four uh, children's authors from Free Spirit Publishing, um, and we're going to talk about their books, which focus mostly on social emotional learning, um, uh, with elements of other good stuff in there too. As I'm as I've looked through them, um, so I'm going to let you all each uh, meet them here. Um, let's start with you, Lydia. If you would introduce yourself. I'm Lydia Bowers, and uh, I write a children's book series called We Say What's Okay. Um, I was in the early childhood field for a long time, directly in a classroom, and then thought I was making a career change into sexuality education, which is always sort of a weird (laughs) big switch. And then quickly found out that people had a lot of questions about topics relating to young children, because that's where my experience had been and things about uh, bodies, gender, consent. And so I found myself in a weird overlap that we don't normally think exists, but it does. Mm -hmm. And so my series is on consent foundations and helping children um, understand and set boundaries for themselves, respect those in others. And the entire book series sort of goes through these different aspects, these facets of consent that we don't always stop and think about. Yeah. And listeners will remember that you've been on at least once before. I think we've talked about it more than once, but maybe only really got it to happen once. So, um, so thanks. Welcome, Lydia. Um, uh, uh, Okay. So, oh, we've got two Debbies here. Let's go with Doc or Debs. Go to with Dr. Deborah next. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Dr. Deborah Cerrone. I'm a psychologist in practice over 30 years and a professor at Adelphi University. And um, I've written in lots of different genres, academic articles, nonfiction books, fiction books. But my hope was to be able to translate, translate social, emotional, and psychological stories to children given that if we start young and early, we can kind of take the stigma away from some of these issues of anxiety and sadness and difficult feelings. So um, I was delighted to join Free Spirit with the Sometimes When book series. And we focus on everything from boredom to jealousy, to what it takes, it's okay to be mad, it's okay to be sad. Um, And my big piece in writing just with everything that I do is uh, everything's research-based. So on every page of these beautifully illustrated books, 
um, there's it's grounded in research mm -hmm. symptoms and techniques and tips for caregivers and parents and grandparents and educators. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah. my spiel. It's yeah. grounded in research. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you. Um, I do. I do also really love the illustrations in all of these books and just the color, the palettes that are chosen for the stories. And so I want to make sure when we're talking about your books that we can give credit to the illustrators too. And I'm just saying that to remember yeah, myself. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, I'm sure many of these uh, authors will say the same thing. It's, it's such a wonderful thing that our illustrators have been either matched with us or by luck. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, the, the book is nothing without the illustrations, mm -hmm. the, pro the prose could stand on its own, but no way without the <laughs> illustration. Well, it's just a really great combination, I think, in each of them. Um, okay, next, the next Deborah now can introduce herself. Hey, my name is Deborah Farmer Chris, and I spent 14 full-time years in the classroom as an elementary, middle, and high school teacher. I did a, a bunch of stuff, and I was a, a assistant head at a K-8 K school for a while. Uh, and then when I was moved to part-time, when I my kids were very young, I got back to my first love, which was writing. And I began working as an education writer for NPR's Mind Shift out of KQED. And then I began to work as a parenting columnist for PBS Kids, which I've been doing for eight, seven, eight years now, which has just been this incredible opportunity that has really honed in my focus on age two to eight, which is where my, um, which is the sweet spot for PBS kids. Mm -hmm. And so it was with that kind of passion in mind that I eventually sat down to say, I want to really merge these loves, my writing for parenting and for parents, and also um, my love of kind of reading and reading to kids. And so that's why Free Spirit was a great choice because mm -hmm. it's a great book for kids, but allows us to also write that letter to the caregivers in the yes. back. And for me, I just feel like, I mean, it's part of my job to read parenting <laughs> books and write about them. But if, I mean, most of us don't have time to do that. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, because parenting is a whole lot of work. So I, I find that, and even teaching, right? It's like, all right, the one professional development book that I, I need to read and I want to read the rest. Mm -hmm. So um, I feel like writing the Cliff Notes versions uh, that we can see like what are the two pieces of research in this book that are awesome has been something that's been really fun to do. And I'm hoping that, you know, books like this are, hey, you can sit down and read with your kids, you can do it anyway, and you can grab a couple of tips along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the care caregiver notes at the end. And I know Lydia's yours also have songs at the end, usually, right? Um, maybe, maybe the others do, and I just am forgetting. But um, there's, there's really good, but really accessible and easily managed information for the adults that are reading the books with children too at the end. Yeah. Okay, Afsana, it's your turn. Hi, everyone. I'm Afsana Maradian. I'm the author of the Jamie is Jamie series. I, like everyone, well, almost everyone else on, on this podcast, I also was in the classroom for many years. I started at a Montessori school and then moved into the junior high level and ended up teaching graduate school, university level. So I, I've kind of taught, I say I've taught kids from three to you know, 65 at this point. And um, you know, just have an absolute love for education. Once I had my own child, everything changed. I got into homeschooling and I'm the founder of MLC Homeschool Coaching. And I work now coaching um, mostly moms who struggle with homeschooling their neurodivergent families. And that is, 
an amazing journey to be on. And I really love the, the work I get to do now. Um, the Jamie series, the first book, Jamie's Jamie, was born out of um, an unfortunate need that still exists for uh, gender nonconforming kids to feel like there's space for them. And even though I grew up in a time of free to be you and me and we're smashing gender stereotypes, they seem to still be there. And it seems to be very intense, especially in the in the preschool ages where the toys have such colors, you know, they're all gendered by color and the girls still are given the dolls and the princess stuff and the boys are still given the cars and the dinosaurs. And that, in my case, personally and personal note, that was way too much for my child who really did not fit the mold of what it meant to be a girl, you know, four or five year old girl and now is non-binary. And so I wanted to write books that remind adults that we're really not helping kids by imposing our gendered ideas, you know, our ideas of gender and our gendered expectations on young children, that actually we want them to be free to play their way and discover who they are. And we want them to feel celebrated and validated for whoever they are as individuals and make space for the whole gender spectrum that mm -hmm. we know exists, that we love and make kids just feel like whoever they are is fantastic and we love them for who they are. So that's, yes. that's what the series um, focuses on doing. In different yeah, yeah. Well, as a parent of two gender non-conforming children, I thank you. <laughs> um, okay. So I'm, I just can't wait to dig in and let you each go a little deeper into talking about your stories and your books. Um, I'm, I'm just going to followed the order that you are on my screen. And I know that might be different for you, but so that brings me back to you, Lydia. Um, so let's, let's dive into the, we say what's okay series. All right. So I have, uh, four of four books out of six that are well, almost out. So three are out now. And the fourth one comes out of this summer. Uh, the first is we listen to our bodies. And that one discusses a lot of emotional awareness and how emotions physically manifest in our bodies um, and helping children be able to recognize, um, you know, what our, what our bodies are trying to tell us and how those emotions show up. Um, the second one, we check in with each other, um, is sort of about how consent can be revoked. We're allowed to change our minds. We're allowed mm -hmm. to say no. And sometimes that means something we played with yesterday, we just may not feel like playing with it today. It doesn't mean that, you know, we don't always like being with our friends, but sometimes we can change our minds and mm -hmm. that it's important that we are making sure that we are still enjoying the activities we're doing and that our friends are also enjoying those. Um, the, we have, uh, we ask permission, which that one's pretty self-explanatory, mm -hmm. but the importance of checking and making sure that um, people want physical affection and that, uh, you know, we're checking to make sure that people, you know, somebody wants a hug or, you know, if we're offering a high five, uh, the one that's coming out this summer is we accept no, which is something that we don't always stop and think about. Oh, there it is. Um, <laughs> when we talk about consent, a lot of us are recognizing that, you know, young children shouldn't feel obligated to show physical affection, you know, they shouldn't have to hug grandma if they don't want to, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't always talk about, 
being on the other end of it. And if I've asked you for a hug and you've said, no, what do I do deal? How do I handle those big feelings? How do I process those? Mm -hmm. Um, that's something that I see if you look, you know, on a bigger sort of, uh, pan out a bit and look at some of these behaviors as adults, we see a lot of that topic come up when there's violence in the news mm -hmm. often, and you'll hear things saying, oh, well, you know, he was turned down or, you know, somebody said no to a date. And so this person went and created all sorts of violence. Mm -hmm. And these messages start very young and that it's important that when I'm told no, how do I, what do I do with that? That mm -hmm. and validating those emotions, but it's okay to feel sad and it's okay to feel angry. Emotions are good, but we're responsible for those. Yeah. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, consent is, um, from an adult perspective, that's, I've always kind of been like, well, yeah, that makes sense. If you say stop, you stop and all that, but, but it's newer for me to think about it in terms of early childhood and, um, children living together in these spaces. And, uh, so it's been really interesting for me to shift my thinking, but I do meet a lot of resistance when, you know, a really simple example for me was, um, when I was teaching at a preschool, the children could choose, you know, from a, two or three greetings, if they wanted a high five or a hug or a handshake. Um, and we eventually added nothing to the list. We hadn't had that on the list. Um, one little guy started to say nothing. And his dad was like, you always used to get a handshake. And he said, he's five years old. He said, I didn't know that nothing was an option before. <laughs> so that helped me shift. But the, the parents would be really pressuring. Well, you have to choose one. Come on, give her a hug. And when I would then explain, this is sort of, um, this is how I'm introducing consent. This is one of the ways that we're telling children that they can make decisions about their, their own bodies. Um, the, that was hard for parents because it felt like impoliteness. It felt like disrespect. So, um, so that was a long way of me saying, talk, talk about that piece of it. Maybe the, yeah, it's, the resistance. And it can be very difficult. And one thing that I always want to make sure that we say, and there's not an easy solution for this, but it's something we have to sort of sit with is that there are some major cultural implications when it comes mm -hmm. to consent. Um, and there are some cultural situations where it would be considered extremely rude not to go in and greet every member of your family with a kiss. Mm -hmm. And so there are times where um, sometimes we have to sit with that and kind of process it for ourselves and go, okay, you know, what are the messages that I'm trying to send? You know, how are ways that I can still teach respect and um, how do we make sure children are still receiving the physical affection and the touch that they do need? Um, but also how do we respect some of these boundaries? Um, and that can be very difficult. And for now, for many families, it is, if that's just what you were always expected to do, sometimes just being confronted with a different idea can be mm -hmm. difficult. Um, if we look at the amount of people that have dealt with assault or abuse in some situations, many of them, once we sort of talk through, here's why we um, teach these sort of consent, because as a safety thing as well, mm -hmm. um, many people become a little more open to the idea and recognize, oh, okay, you know, if I had been able to say no, even in safe situations, maybe something would have been different when I was in an unsafe mm -hmm. situation. Um, and because being able to say no to 
the people that you love and trust and have that backed up makes it a little easier to be able to say no in other situations sure. as well. And and you talked about that when you talked about, um, I think it was, we asked permission. Oh no. Um, we accept no, I guess the new one. Um, that it's focusing on the perspective of that person who's been asked not to, not to touch or not to kiss or not to tickle or whatever. Um, and I think that's a, a perspective that I hadn't thought about. Like I was so focused on making sure the child knew what they could say, the child who didn't want it. Um, so I think that's an important tool. I always think about the impact our decisions every day with young children can have um, it, for the future. Uh, and so we have this wonderful opportunity to, to participate and impact a whole generation who can grow up thinking differently with different permissions and, and different um, perspectives than, than I had when I, you know, until adulthood. So I think that's one of the things I really like about your series. Um, I want to, your, yours are, are they all illustrated by the same illustrator, Lydia? Yes. So yeah. uh, they're all done by Isabel Munoz mm-hmm. and, oh yeah, she's amazing. Yeah. Um, she's and I don't know how the situation was for the rest of you. I know for mine, because they were very specific characters, um, I had to submit character descriptions <laughs> of, of each main child and mine are all based on my nieces and nephews and my children. And so it was kind of amazing actually seeing how she came back with all of these illustrations that were just incredible because you can describe somebody, um, but obviously there's still, you know, character versions of kids that I know in real life, um, not the actual ones, but so it was just always, that was, is always one of my favorite parts is seeing the illustrations come back and um, what she had done with them and, um, yeah. Oh, she's incredible. Yeah. And I think this is true of all of the books. It, there's a lot of rich uh, diversity and in, inclusion in, in the children and, and family structures and the everybody who's, who's um, part of the story. And I think that um, is also um, surprisingly, surprisingly difficult to find when I tell people to do like a book audit and make sure they still report struggling, finding good authentic um, representations of, of that kind of diversity. So that's one of the things I really like about this series. So I wanna, uh, I wanna make sure everybody gets good, good time. So um, uh, uh, I'm gonna move on, but when we get back to the end and we're wrapping up, if there's something else you wanted to say, Lydia, uh, <laughs> and this is for all of you as we move on, go ahead and jump in with that as we're wrapping up. So I'm gonna move down to uh, Deborah Serrani. I'm, I'm not doing well with your names and I meant to apologize earlier because I said yours wrong, not Sunny. Yes, and you. maybe then too, but anyway. Okay, so Deborah. Uh, so uh, like I said, I, I always wanted to write um, children's books focusing on some of the big issues that I deal with adults in my clinical practice to kind of shrink it down, get it down to younger ages, expose kids and adults to understand a little bit more about what these big feelings are. Uh, so my first book was Sometimes When I'm Sad. Got it, all right. And um, it, you know, one of the great joys in working with Free Spirit is um, the ability to do very multicultural, very diverse experiences in the characters. Um, pediatric depression is at an all time high. 
And we know that pediatric depression, particularly for minority and underprivileged children is, um, the, is, is in the worst state for the trajectory of child development. And also with anxiety too, with the pandemic. Um, so sometimes when I'm sad, really it's the story about what sadness looks like and it doesn't look the same. Pediatric depression doesn't look the same as adult depression. Um, adults tend to say they're sad, uh, will be able to note certain kinds of hopelessness and despairing feelings, but mostly for children, it's lots of body aches and hiding and feeling mm -hmm. guilty and foolish, things that we would never <clears throat> attribute to depression. So like I said, I like to weave in all kinds of research. So the story is a sweet story, but the reader, the child and the adult are learning what to look for, um, what symptoms there are and why a child might feel that way. And then what to do with these, mm -hmm. with these big feelings, what holistic things can be done. Um, you know, as a clinician, I know all of the traditional ways that we can focus on mental illness, but there are a plethora of holistic measures that we can use that are extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I take the readers through that. Uh, sorry, I didn't, I started to interrupt and then I was like so focused on not interrupting anymore that I paused too long. Uh -oh. um, but one of the things, I froze. I'm sorry, what were you going to say? <laughs> one of the things that I really appreciate about um, uh, your books and thank you Free Spirit for letting me look at them all <laughs> um, is that sometimes books about feelings are very syrupy or very oversimplified or sort of condescending even. And um, you, you are, you're just telling a story about these, um, these two, uh, the adult and the child sort of figuring each other out. And, and it does give more um, practical kinds of ideas and things to try in the story, but then you also have the bit at the end for the caregivers. So it's, it's really, I think, well done. Um, Thank you. And, and you know, I, I when they asked to, to continue, I was like, you know, I can I can list twenty books, <laughs> yeah. twenty things I'd like to do, and they they asked uh, to talk about anger that yeah. you know help young children deal with their anger early, much along the lines of what Lydia had said. Um, you know, de dealing with these things early can really help people learn and children learn uh, a life skill set, mm -hmm. um, and you know, learning that sometimes kids are irritable because they're hungry or they're tired or they can't find the right word to say. And the difference between frustration and rage and, and that anger really doesn't have to be a bad thing at all. Mm -hmm. That it's a signal to alert us that something's going on, something we're overlooking or something we're needing and to help encourage parents and educators and caregivers to not make it feel so shameful um, to be angry and that yeah. underneath the anger is generally some type of unfulfilled wish or need. And when we can teach kids to identify it and problem solve it, we're going to reduce violence later in life 
and um, you know all all the kinds of things that we know early education offers children. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time I see people in in their young adult or adult years, symptoms are kind of really solidified. But when we can get in really young and teach young children and parents how to socially and emotionally learn these things, we mm-hmm. give them a gift. Yeah, so often those big feelings then are viewed through the lens of behavior guidance or compliance um, <clears throat> and labeled as challenging for us. Um, I mean, I think my, my son, who is almost 30 now, but when he was in elementary school, um, he would get, he would talk about a stomach ache whenever, like if it was lunchtime, he ended up eating um, with the secretary at her desk because he would get a stomach ache in the cafeteria. And um, uh, then the childcare that he went to before that even would talk about how he would talk about um, his stomach hurting. And now we can look back and say, uh, that was probably anxiety. I mean, that, that was probably, and I just didn't know. So a book like this would have been so helpful, um, helpful for me. The other thing that I think about or thought about as I heard you talking was we've seen um, in early childhood over the last several years, um, a lot of conversation and a lot of focus on social and emotional learning, which is a great step because for a while it wasn't really included in there. Um, But what I see so often is people will create like a feelings corner and that's as far as it goes. And it turns into just like a timeout spot. Like you need to go to the feelings corner because you're out of, you know, you're mad. You need to go to the feelings corner. And it turns into this inadvertent shaming. Like we feel like we're doing, you know, the book said I should create a, a soft, comfortable space for them to be safe. Um, but we, we don't go deep enough into um, the real emotion of it. We, we look at the disruption kind of side of it. Um, right. And, and I think a lot of, you know, social and emotional learning um, co- comes with a set of challenges. We're asking people to think a little differently, perceive things a little differently, and change can be very scary for some people who've, you know, culturally thought of how you raise your kids or how you behave as an adult or a mother or father. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it does come with a lot of challenges. That's what's so wonderful about these books from Free Spirit. And I'm, I'm not just, you know, it's, I was so excited to read everybody else's books. They were so wonderfully done and yeah. in ways that, you know, just hone in on such important areas for young children. Mm-hmm. As a clinician, that to me is my biggest goal, just to be able to help little ones not struggle and suffer as much as, you know, maybe I have or people I know have. Mm-hmm. So it, it really is a gift to have these books. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I just realized also that we, we blew right through the opening quote <laughs> and just jumped right into conversation. <laughs> so I'm going to throw it in now just because I made you all work so hard on it. I feel like I better use a quote. So um, we had lots of good suggestions, but this is sort of our overarching I guess, uh, guidance for our conversation. And it's from Fred Rogers. He said, anything that's human is mentionable and anything that is mentionable can be more manageable. When we can talk about our feelings, they become less overwhelming, less upsetting and less scary. And I feel like that connects to both of what you, what both of you have shared so far. Um, 
and and I know it will will connect going forward. So so um, how about your illustrator? My illustrator is Kira Teese, and like I said, she's she's been with me from the start, and I am just so grateful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, you know, it's it's different writing children's books for sure, as the different genres that I sometimes put myself into. And I love the collaborative experience yeah. of putting together a children's picture book. It, it is a joy from beginning to end to get the message and the story and the texture and the art. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I can't say enough about free spirit. Just <laughs> you say all the good things you want to about free spirit because I'm going to keep Amanda's asking gonna them for, very happy. for hosts <laughs> and, yeah, and books. Oh, <laughs> We'll just get that all out there. Um, okay, thank you. Thank you very much. So I'm going to move next to uh, Deborah Chris. And it's your turn. Thanks. So yeah, I'm Deborah from Chris. And the first book that I submitted really, I, I submitted on a Friday because I take my writing risks on a Friday. So I always do like, if I have a big pitch that I'm nervous. That is like, so first brilliant. First time, first time Washington Post, I'm like, I did on a Friday because Friday is the day I'm going to be brave. Um, so <laughs> I sent this off on a Friday and it was, I love you all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't expect this to be a series. I expected it, if anybody picked it up, to be a one-time thing. Um, but it, it came from this mantra, when, you know, when my daughter was about two and a half, uh, shortly after my son was born, um, and she was just having one of those meltdowns where like all my strategies weren't working and I was frazzled and she was frazzled and I had pulled it. I, I was driving with cookies at this point and nothing was happening. <laughs> and I finally, I, I picked her up and I put her on my lap and I said, really out of desperation, you know, I, I really love you when you're mad. And she stopped Aww. crying. She looked at me like I was nuts. And then, um, I, so I kept going. I was like, I love you when you're happy. I love you when you're sad. I love you when you're scared. I love when you're mad. I love you all the time. And she, she, as she nestled in and settled down, it was one of those like moments where you just, I realized as much for her as like, I had said something important for me. Mm -hmm. um, because as I, I do a lot with parent education and, and I, I often will say, you know, how many of you, when you were growing up, there were some emotions that just weren't okay. Right. Like it wasn't okay to show blank. And, you know, it's, our parents' generation and their parents' parents, right? And so there were certain emotions that I just had internalized were not okay. Um, and yet as a parent, I just, I wanted her to know that, and both of my children, but I also want to know more about it um, and more about what it was. And so this is where I began, you know, really my deep dive. This is before I was writing, you know, these books, just into kind of just emotional development in young children, right? When I when I have questions, I become a researcher. So, um, you know, I was researching, I had, I was able to put on my journalist hat. I was chatting to every psychologist I could talk to about kids and emotion. And really it was like, it's just about, you know, at its simplest level, naming it, normalizing mm -hmm. it, and then navigating. And so often we jump to navigating. How do we help them fix it, fix it, fix it? Where just the naming and normalizing are so much work. Uh -huh. So I love you all the time, um, just because it's the first one, like my heart's in this one, because this was my mantra to my kids for years and years and years. As, and um, one of the things I, I love is you have this kid, you know, in this, I love it, it's a nice interracial family, and he has a day where there are messes. And I mean, 
when I go read it at preschools, I've uh, been on the preschool tour. It's like the best book tour ever, right? <laughs> it's like, I love you when you're running late, you rush and dash and scamper. I love you when you find your shoes behind the laundry hamper because my son loses his shoes every single day. <laughs> um, and so I've been really interested to discover that um, one of the kind of segments that has been picking up on this book and some of the podcasts I've been doing are um, for you know ADHD, autistic and neurodivergent kids. Because that message, when they're getting so much feedback about well-meaning feedback about where are your shoes, where's this, have you done this, have you checked this? It's like death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Mm-hmm. Like you just are hearing so much feedback about what to do and what to think about. And just that message of, I love you all the time. I love you when you make a mess. I love you. That's just the constant. And mm-hmm. I thought, you know, we have to counteract really purposefully with our kids that all their behaviors and emotions, all of that, that's not going to shift, you know, our, the balance of our, our, our anchor of our, our love and affection for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they <clears throat> asked, asked, like, could this become a series? I was like, okay. okay. <laughs> uh, so the next one became your, uh, your feelings all the time. Uh, and all these books have animals in them, which I love. Yeah. The first two have cats, the last two have dogs, and yeah. they're the best. They're like little mischievous creatures. And this one is really, I love Deborah's books. So, uh, Dr. Deborah's because it's very much about like how to like name, name, notice, and then the navigate. This is much more just on the naming. It's just really just the literacy piece of there's this motion, this, mm-hmm. and we're not, it's not, but we're not labeling. We're not, none are positive or negative. You just, you have these, you're going to mm-hmm. have your mixed emotions. You're going to sometimes feel two things at once. You might be happy and sad, excited and scared. Um, that's a super fun one to read with kids. I found because you know, we start with the four basics and they make their facial expressions in preschool, happy, sad. And then I say, okay, what's another word for mad? And they start going like, <laughs> frustrated. Or I asked one, I was like, what's another word for sad? And somebody said grief. And I said, oh, okay, what does that boy. mean? It was a five-year-old. And I said, well, it's when something, something you really love something and it goes away. Mm. And, you know, I'm like, okay. That's, <laughs> and, and I, and I, it's, and for me, like, you know, you were saying, Deborah, like, you know, this anger sometimes is just like, it's an invitation to get curious about what else is going on inside. And I'm like, I really feel like, like, that's just like, anger is such a triggering emotion for us as adults, but it's such a tip of the iceberg emotion for kids, because so much comes out, so much dysregulation comes out as that. Like, I remember, yeah, at a time, this, this, uh, um, I purposely asked the illustrator to put a bunch of butterflies in this um, story. Mm-hmm. So it actually ends with the release of butterflies because as I was writing the story, I was thinking about my son at the beginning of the pandemic, we we're two months in and he went outside and he found a caterpillar. He was home from kindergarten. Life was crazy. He put it in a jar. He went and found stuff to feed it. And then the next morning, my his older sister found it. It was dead on the, in the bottom of the jar, but life was busy. Like I'm, I'm, teaching from home. My kids are on Zoom from home. I cleaned out the jar. But that afternoon, he was a beast. Like he was a total beast all afternoon. Finally, like I sent myself to my room. I sent him to his. I had to calm down. And I went in and thinking I know a lot about emotions. I'm like, so you got a lot of mad inside you today. And he was underneath all of the stuffed animals. And he said, no, I'm not mad. I'm sad. Mm. And he said, there's something that's supposed to be alive is dead. Oh. And I was like, and it was like, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. It was like one week from Father's Day and I lost my dad just a couple of years oh. before. And I was like, you know, maybe that's why I've been mad all week. <laughs> maybe like I'm sad underneath. And it was just, I feel like all this work we're doing with social and emotional learning and understanding 
it's like such an opportunity to do the work ourselves, mm -hmm. like on ourselves as parents and educators, because we didn't always have the person right. investigating with us. Okay, buddy, what's going on? It was like, mm -hmm. go to your room, you know, yes. like, and come back out when you can present yourself. Like, I mean, I've done it perfectly, but just going in and allowing that exchange to happen, like, oh, this is work. I still need to do it myself. Yeah. So I just, I feel like, you know, all of these books um, and this work we do is for our kids, but it's for us too, right? It's like, right. you know, my, a big piece of my, uh, my kind of professional love is character education. And we always say like, you know, character is something spilled over the course of a lifetime. Like you're, you never get there. Like you're working on being brave your whole life. And I feel the same thing is like for emotional understanding, yeah. like we try our whole life to really figure out how to live in this body that we're in and what to do with these, you know, big emotions that come. So. Yeah. I think as I was listening to you, I, that's exactly what you just said is exactly what I've been thinking is that this is not only, you know, educational for the children and sort of empowering for the children. Um, but it could also really be like the start of some healing for some adults who are reading this or just permission given to them that they've never had before. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it's, 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 it's not just going from top down. This is everyone involved is getting some benefit uh, from this. Um, I had a, a little boy in uh, one of my preschool classes. He was four and um, I can't even tell you what happened, but he was crying and red faced and crawling under crawled under a table and I said I sat down and did my best you know calm teacher voice <laughs> I was like oh I can tell that you're really angry Michael and he went I'm not angry I'm frustrated but you wouldn't know that <laughs> I love it love it and so I thanked him. I was like, oh, you're right. I, I guessed something about you and it wasn't right. Thank you for telling me. But I can still picture that little face under the table <laughs> giving me my Not correction. That you know. Not that you would know. <laughs> That's right. Yep. Yep. Um, okay. And how about your illustrator, Jennifer? Oh. How does she say her name? Uh, Zavoyne. And Zavoyne. I got to say, like, I love these pictures so much. And, you know, sometimes like, you know, you do this art direction, right? And you put stuff in, you almost for forgotten you had. And I had asked, um, you know, uh, you know, in terms of inclusion to make sure I, I had written, like, I'd love to have somebody with a hearing device, right? Because oh, yeah. Not many kids with hearing devices. And I've never actually seen in a book. Mm -hmm. And I, I forgot about it. I thought she had forgotten about it. And my niece is 27, who's developmentally delayed, um, and she was home with my sister. My sister was reading this book to her. And she says, mom, you know, like, that's just like my friend who has mm -hmm. a hearing aid. And it's just hidden there. Yeah. And so I posted actually that one on, um, on Twitter. And I had three moms within 30 minutes email me and say, my kid has a hearing aid. And I've never seen it in a book except for a book about kids with hearing aids. Yes, and exactly. So, yeah. So they're like, it's just so nice. It's just there it's not obvious it's just part yeah. of the illustration so I can't say enough good things it's been so magical like the most recent book that's out next month um <laughs> like just the colors they're uh -huh. so magical so yeah. yeah these illustrators are something else yeah I um so I teach early childhood at a community college and um I I talk a lot when we're talking about either diversity or children's literature um uh, I talk about how 
it's more than just having a book about a wheelchair on your shelf. Um, mm-hmm. I have a really, a really great one and it's a series, uh, uh, by Mike Huber. Um, uh, and it's called Eric's adventure or something. And the story isn't about Eric's wheelchair, but he's in a wheelchair through it all. But the story is about this adventure he's having in his play. And, um, and, you know, his, his wheelchair is right there at the sensory table with everybody else who's playing. And um, so I use that one as an example a lot, but now I have more examples <laughs> to include when I'm trying to help them see that what, the, you know, what the difference might be. You, right. you can have the book that's just about a wheelchair, you know, but, but when children just see themselves reflected in the book, at, you know, just their own life reflected and not just this mm-hmm. one element of, of what's going on, I think that's really powerful. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Oh, yeah. Afsane. Is that right? Did I do it right this time? Plus Afsane. Afsane. Oh, I, I know it's it's challenging. It's no, not a comment. It's me. Next time you're on the show, I'll get it right all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, my book, uh, the first book that came out is called Jamie is Jamie, a book about being yourself and playing your way. And as I kind of mentioned before, it was born out of watching my own child struggles. And specifically, we were at a restaurant and my you know, then three-year-old went over to a boy and asked to play because he had some action figures. And the boy said, no, these are only for boys. Like Girls wow. can't play this. Mm. And then the same thing actually happened a few weeks later, different restaurant, different kid, same experience. And I, you know, really, to say I was angry is an understanding because we have done so much to create a world where you know we our little girls are strong and confident and can play anything and be anything and you know there are no more barriers on what you know little girls can can have in their life and grow up to be um but i had to really think about it and the complexity of it because it isn't just about you know the the rejection and being told that that's not for you it's actually the other side. When we teach kids, um, especially our little, our, our sons, right, the boys in our lives, that they, they can't play with dolls, they can't play with princess, they can't, we're actually stifling them. Mm-hmm. And when we take a step back as educators who know a lot about child development, we know how much learning happens through play in those early years. And so I feel like the worst thing that we can do as adults is to put any restrictions or limitations on that play. Mm-hmm. So of course we want everyone to be safe. We don't want to, you know, when I say restrictions, yeah. no restrictions, but yeah. no, we want to keep them safe and we want to make sure that they're learning how to communicate in healthy ways. But the dress up, the role play, the imagination, the experimentation, the trying different things, that it's totally counter to that when we say, no, these are the things that girls play with and these are the things that boys play with. And then there's the issue of all of the kids who don't identify or don't relate Mm -hmm. to our societal definitions of what it means to be a girl or what it means to be Mm -hmm. a boy because we create these kind of rigid definitions. And then there's a lot of kids that don't subscribe to that and kind of then are they wrong to be who they are? What you know, how should they play, you know, all those kinds of things. So I wanted to flip it on its head and create a character, an actual character named Jamie that every child can relate to. 
because Jamie is awesome. Jamie's a great friend. Jamie loves to play and be dynamic. And Jamie doesn't have any pronouns. So we don't know, is Jamie a boy? Is Jamie a girl? Is Jamie mm-hmm. transgender child, non-binary? We don't know. It's Jamie is Jamie. <laughs> and the, the point of the book is play with everything and everyone. And it just doesn't matter because gender really has nothing to do with play. Mm-hmm. So that that book was so fun to put out. I was thrilled that Free Spirit um, was interested in in supporting the project, and it was it was so great to put out and then get to talk to kids about because they always try to figure out is Jamie a boy or a girl, and all of their reasons then cause them to actually confront their ideas about gender. Oh, Jamie's a boy because the hair is short. No, and then other kids say no, but so-and-so is a girl and she has short hair. Like, so Jamie must be a girl because Jamie dances ballet. Oh no, but they're boys, you know. <laughs> so it just starts, it starts a really important conversation where we all have to kind of really challenge ourselves on how we view gender and then create these truly inclusive places, right? Mm-hmm. If gender, if play is gender neutral, then everyone can participate. Everyone can feel validated and celebrated for who they are and respected and feel like they have a place. So that kind of set the the series on track because then what flows from that, if you wanna have a truly inclusive place, you then need inclusive language. And so the second book, Jamie and Bubby, Jamie spends the day with great grandma, that's called Bubby. (laughs) And Bubby makes a lot of assumptions based on appearance, hairstyle, you know, not really paying attention of who's a man and who's a woman. And Bubby makes a lot of mistakes. And Jamie has to kind of patiently explain, hey, Bubby, that's, you know, actually, oh, you know, short hair, but that's my neighbor, Miss Wallace. And, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, you know, Bubby, that person that you knew as a child that, you know, as a boy is actually a woman and the pronouns have changed. And, oh, that's my friend who's non-binary who uses they and them. Or if you're not sure, you can just use they or them and you don't have to make an assumption. So it begins that discussion of of language, which I really don't see children having much of an issue with. I think it's more adults that we really have to retrain our brains and how we use pronouns because we just go on automatic pilot. We see, we make assumptions, we make associations and we and we speak. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, you know, I knew the importance of it, but when my child changed their pronouns to they, them, and people would make mistakes and use she, my, my child would cringe, like, this is not me. And I realized this is the same as calling a girl he or calling a boy she. This is, this is the wrong pronoun. This is not who this person is. Mm-hmm. And in order to really create inclusive spaces, where kids feel validated, we have to respect their name changes and their mm-hmm. pronoun changes and understand that everyone has the right to change their name and their pronoun <laughs> as much as they as much as they yeah. want. And all we have to do is just, you know, pay attention. If we make a mistake, apologize, self-correct, yeah. ask the question. But it really helps when we make the effort to introduce ourselves with our pronouns first so that they then can respond to that and not feel put on the spot or that there's something different about them because they have, you know, other pronouns. So that that became a really important, I think, part of the discussion of what does it mean to create truly 
gender inclusive spaces. Mm -hmm. And then um, when I was doing, uh, you know, I'll share as, as Deborah shared when uh, reading in a third grade classroom of, of Jamie is Jamie about, you know, toy play with whatever you want. Um, this girl brought up a creepy doll that she had been given as a gift that sat on her shelf. I think it was her sister's. And it sat on her shelf in her room and scared her for years and years and years, this creepy doll. And one after another, I think every girl in the classroom raised their hand and shared their creepy doll story. And it really like drove home for me all of the expectations and the assumptions that we make as adults when we're interacting with children. And we say, oh, okay, that's a, that's a girl eight years old, therefore they're gonna like this toy or this craft or this, the, these clothes or this thing, because that's what this gender at this age is into. And really we then, because we're the ones with the power and the authority and the relationships we have with kids, it puts kids in this really odd spot where they either have to go along with it or they think they maybe have to disappoint us mm -hmm. or challenge us or and you know the kids in our lives just they they want love they want acceptance they want us to be proud of them they don't really want to you know sometimes it's hard to say no i don't like that it might be easier if it's your parents but it's it's not always easy if it's a teacher or you know another relative or even mm -hmm. if it's your parents so yeah. the new Jamie book that's coming out um, this summer, just a few weeks, is Jamie's class has something to say, a book about sharing with adults. And it it's that. It's <laughs> it's less it's less um specifically folk. There is gender does um you know have its place in it, but it really is about how kids can learn to share their ideas, their opinions, their preferences, their fears who they are with the adults in their lives and also gives an example of how adults can respond so that kids feel that it's safe, right? Mm -hmm. We just want to create all these safe spaces for the kids in our lives where it's inclusive and respectful and they, they can feel free to be themselves. So it's, it's a story of really, you know, self-advocacy in that sense. How do you speak up for yourself? How do you say what you really like? even if you disagree mm -hmm. with your, your grandmother or your uncle or whatever, how do you share that maybe something that your adult has said to you is upsetting to you or you don't, you know, you don't like it. So um, that's what, that's what that book is focused on. And I feel like um, just to echo everyone else, these, these themes that we touch on are so helpful in learning um, and teaching kids how to communicate in healthy ways. And then they also help the adults, us, remind, you know, remind ourselves or help us learn how to respond and communicate in healthy ways. Because all of these things are, they're sweet stories and they're necessary, important stories for young kids. But as kids grow, these things become very serious mm -hmm. and can lead to a lot of harm, you know, violence, as Lydia was mentioning about violence. But like, you know, we know that as kids grow, if their pronouns and their chosen names are not used, it, it greatly increases depression, suicide mm -hmm. rates. Like at a certain point, all of these sweet, important topics become, you know, really instrumental in how people exist in the world, how they're treated, how they're perceived, if they feel that there's a place for them and that who they are is valued and respected, you know, 
can make a, a fundamental difference. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, I think, you know, with what the Jamie series is trying to do is just kind of give space for kids, which is why they, they love it. Oh, when I told a group, <laughs> that, I told, you know, a group of 50 kids, but then they said, what's the new book about? And I said, sharing with your adults, what you like and dislike. And they were like, yeah, <laughs> we want to be able to say that we don't like that. You know, you know, really just opening up more and more spaces for kids to feel confident, to be themselves, and for adults to, you know, change the way that we think about kids. These are humans that need to be respected, mm -hmm. and we need to listen and communicate as, you know, as equals. I know that's like a hard thing to okay, say. That's very that. much a culture shift, too. This, what you're describing for some adults would be, um, yes, yeah, definitely. Difficult generation, all of that. But it, it also, you know, it makes sense because we know that our children are intellectual beings. They have their, they're able to choose their identity, their, you know, their gender, their preferences. They know what they're scared of. They know their favorite ice cream flavor. They know all kinds of things. And we have so much to learn from the kids in our lives and how they're experiencing things and the ideas that they're forming. So yeah. that's really, I think, you know, what Free Spirit excels at is creating these communication tools that kids can relate to and really enjoy that at the same time become these really helpful guides for adults. Yeah. I, I just think, can I jump in for a second? Because I just think it was unintended consequences with Jamie is Jamie. I just remember when my daughter was two and I, I went to go buy her some blocks at Target and this was 2014, before 2015, when they discontinued the blue and pink aisle. Oh, but in 2014, mm -hmm. it was blue and pink. And all the building toys were in the blue aisle. And all the dolls were in the pink aisle. And I just remember being like, my mind was blown. I just stood there, like, almost like paralyzed. of like, what psychologically, if you have a six-year-old who says, I want to go get the Legos, I actually have to cross over into a different color-coded aisle. So I ended up doing this deep dive for NPR on um computer science and coding and engineering the gaps right um and so one of the researchers this amazing woman uh Cheryl Sorby she was really looking at how go going back to like playing with Legos and toys and blocks these spatial skills that mm -hmm. translate to coding skills and engineering skills that starting like birth to five the number of hours that boys spend on spatial activities culturally is much higher. And then she's dealing with, you know, freshmen, girls who are interested in this, but feel like they can't do it because maybe their spatial skills aren't as developed. Mm. And then she developed like this little course to like catch them up. And then it was like, the gap was gone. Wow. But like, like that's the unintended consequence. Like there's the emotional consequence. There's even a cognitive consequence mm -hmm. here. There's like, there's choices of what you do in life consequence here. So yeah, I mean, it's funny. We don't think about that with purchasing toys, but you know, yeah. like it's, there's, there's ripple effects in early childhood that Absolutely. go for, yes, far reaching. Have legs. Yes, yes. Dr. Deborah, uh, did you have something you wanted to say there yeah, too? Yeah, I, I, I wanted to say that, you know, much of what we're talking about here is transformative so, uh, SEL, where we're, you know, really challenging implicit bias um, in children, in adults, and that, you know, the, the goal of the work here is to transform a new way of thinking, a new way of feeling, a new way of being. So I know that that's like a, a, a new form of, of SEL. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty 
stoked to be part of it. <laughs> you know, many of your books just, you know, really dovetail right into that transformative piece yeah. and how vital it is for child development. Yeah. So I have, um, I'm going to uh, ask you to uh, talk about your illustrator, the Jamie books, the illustrator for the Jamie, Jamie books, but then I have a question for everybody that I'm saying out loud now. So I remember to ask. So I didn't let you do that before we moved on. If you want to talk about your, uh, your illustrator. Sure. Um, Maria Bogade is the illustrator for all three books so far. And um, it's been an, an amazing process because I wrote, Jamie to be, you know, not where you can't uh, peg Jamie as mm -hmm. a specific gender or anything at all like that. So that doesn't lend itself to an art note. <laughs> so, and I'm not, I'm not an artist. I'm not a visual you know, person. So I didn't have an idea. And I thought, well, what's the point? I'm not the illustrator. I don't even want to have a vision. So I was so thrilled when I saw the the first sketches for Jamie is Jamie and to see all the diversity in the classroom and you know that there's a classmate who has her head covered and that there's just you know that's not something that I, I don't think I don't think there are any Muslim girls represented in any of the picture books that we have in our home library I mean I just I was so impressed that that was a decision that came from Free Spirit mm -hmm. and um, the illustrator and I, I think we have a really great, you know, relationship in in collaborating. I for this um, new book that's coming out, I I love. I have the fondest memories of my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Williams. And I went and found an old, you know, beat up class photo from the early '80s, and I said, "Please, could we base the teacher on?" <laughs> My beloved teacher. So I love she's that. very she's very loosely based. So very, very loosely based. But there's, you know, there's so much room to collaborate. And I feel like Maria gets to put in the things that she loves and I get uh -huh. to add the things that are important to me. And I just I really love the bold colors and just the way that the characters, you know, get to come alive. Yeah. In the pages, so yeah. I, I I even love on all the books, um, the inside cover. Just this kind of art is even seems like it's so thoughtfully done um, in all of them. You know, we've got the butterflies and um, Lydia, yours are under a long, heavy pile. So they'll just have to see your inside covers <laughs> in a minute. So so here's what I want to sort of wrap up with. And thank you all for sharing all of that. Um, and we will share a link for people who want to go buy the books then. <laughs> too when this podcast comes out but so these are the kind of books that some people want to ban these are the kind of books that some people think are dangerous to have in schools um, and for children so I just want to invite you to speak to that if you're willing um, and just just what your thoughts are or how you see I don't know how do you how you see working around that sort of thinking Just jump I'll, in. I'll, I'll jump in first. Um, uh, much of any pushback that you experience, whether you're an educator or parent, um, when it comes to anything that that is scary or new, um, really is not about being a science denier or, um, you know, I don't like the idea of having, you know, gender non-binary things. It's really about holding on to one's identity. So whenever I come mm. across somebody 
in my personal life, in my professional life, or in my author life, that's really struggling with internalizing these new ideas, I always go back to they're fearful of something. And it's a loss of anxiety and identity for some people to integrate new information. But there's room enough for us all. There's not one right way for everything. So whenever I get asked about, you know, SEL or any types of uh, controversial issues in, in children's education, I always try and help people look for the fear. Um, and sometimes that can help you know whether or not you can speak further about it or whether or not, you know, somebody is impenetrable with, with talking about their own anxiety and fear or loss of integrity and identity. But, but to me, um, you know, the most evolved kinds of individuals are always welcoming new ideas and new things. And um, we will be raising more open thinkers now than have ever, uh, you know, been evolved before because yeah. of the kinds of things that we're doing. But it is and can still be a really tough uh, road to, to, to kind of cross with certain individuals who believe that you're treading on their beliefs, their religions, their culture, whatever it is. Uh, but my takeaway would be for, for anybody listening or anybody struggling with this to just look at the anxiety that the, the change or the information or the, the nuance that is being read in a book is triggering someone. And um, it's not our job all the time to make them feel better, but it could help you understand, you know, why there's this big pushback, you know, there's room enough for us all. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Kind of coming off the back of what Dr. Deborah is saying when we're talking about that fear and anxiety, the fact is that social and emotional learning is an aspect of being human. You're not going to get away from it. You mm -hmm. cannot ban it because <laughs> you're going to learn messages about social interactions and you're going to learn messages about our emotions, whether or not something is formally banned. And what happens is that when these things get banned or it becomes a buzzword for people to rally behind, or again, that we are scared about, you can't stop emotions. You can't stop social interactions. And um, those are still going to exist. And as I talk about a lot of times when it comes to ideas of sexuality, of gender, of consent, with all of these things, no message is still a message. It's still mm -hmm. a lesson. It's still learning that happens. But what you learn is that I'm not allowed to talk about my emotions. I'm not allowed to talk about how I feel or that there are certain ways of behaving and interacting with others that we're allowed to talk about. And which takes us again back to that Mr. Rogers quote that these are aspects of humanity. And if it's human, mm -hmm. it's something we can talk about and we should talk about. And so sometimes it's important that we're trying to take a step back and kind of sometimes just ask people, what is it that you think SEL is? You know, what is it that you think is the issue here? Yeah. Because you interact with people every day and even people that stand against social emotional learning still feel it's important to protect their children. So what are the interactions you think are important? What are you teaching your children about emotions? Because I guarantee you, you are doing SEL at home, even if you're speaking against it in a, in a yeah. school board meeting. 
Um, and so a lot of it, there's a lot of just misinformation there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's again, yeah, that what is, what is scaring you? Like Dr. Deborah said, you know, what is the fear here? Because you can't make it go away. Is it, you know, our social interactions, our emotions, they're here no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really up to us how we're deciding to be intentional about how we're talking about these things with children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think just to add on, I think um, it's like, are we supporting our kids in what they're going through and validating them? Or are we giving a message that they're wrong and that how they feel or who they are is wrong? And I, I think that's really something for adults to, to recognize. Like I just spoke with a group of pediatricians about gender inclusion and someone mentioned, oh, but like, why all of a sudden are there all these kids that now are trans <laughs> or non-binary? Like this just seems like a phase or like right. a fat, like it's fashionable. And it's well, because actually kids feel more confident to be themselves and there are more spaces for them to be themselves. So if a child comes to you and says they're trans, you are either going to support them and say, that's awesome. What, what do you need, you know, what do you need me to do? What, what, what do we do, you know, next or a type of thing? How can I support you? Or you're going to give them the impression that who they are is wrong because that's who they are. So it's, you're either going to support and give love, or you're going to give the idea that they are wrong and they don't have a place. And then there's damage done mm-hmm. from that. So I think it's, you know, we can we can call it SCL. We could rename it something else, right? But <laughs> we we have to recognize that our kids are coming to us with their emotions, their ideas, who they are as individuals. And we're either going to embrace that with open arms, with love and acceptance, and support them however they need it, or we're gonna be conveying some pretty damaging, upsetting messages to them and to the other kids and adults in their lives who are watching how to um, react. So I think, you know, we have to recognize our, our responsibility as, as adults. Right. The learning is always happening. It's just sometimes what they're learning is not what we would want or hope or it, or it's sort of harmful (laughs) if it, depending on, on the responses we have and the relationships we have. Okay, Deborah, you're last. Ah. I mean, I'm really wired optimistically, but I like, I think rather than a foolish optimist, I, I think myself as a gritty optimist. I feel like uh-huh. it's a hard one virtue uh-huh. uh, because, you know, it's just in all the work I do, I've lived in, in Utah and New Jersey and Texas and Massachusetts. And when I work with parents, really, I think there's so much common ground with the idea that they really want their kids to thrive. Mm-hmm. They want their kids to, to feel to be to be kind to be to be brave to they want them to grow up to be responsible and respectful to to be their best selves right we just we, we you're you you have a child and i i feel this as a teacher too right you just there's just this overwhelming sense that you want them to be able to just thrive and flourish mm-hmm. and you know what that's and so, you know, when I, when I go back to all this early childhood, uh, looking at emotional literacy and emotional skills, and there is that 
I honestly also believe that most kids really want this too, right? Like it's very exciting for kids to, you know, to feel like they're the kind ones and being inclusive is, it feels good, right? Yeah. Being brave feels good. What gets in the way so often is emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's kind of like, it's, you know, it's a good shot, but who's, what's blocking it? And it might be anxiety that's blocking it or fear that's blocking it or not having had breakfast and being in a really <laughs> bad mood. And so, you know, the kid needs, does need to be in the corner. They need to have a granola bar to help them uh, regulate. And so I feel like when we are as, as adults really being to borrow from Mark Brackett's phrase, emotion scientists, rather than emotion judges, mm-hmm. when we get curious about the kid in front of us, their whole self, like who they are, what they're bringing, then we provide that safe anchor for whatever they're bringing into our classrooms um, or whatever they're bringing home from the classrooms back to our houses to be that kind of anchor. And I, I always go back to what I feel like is one of those hopeful pieces of research of all time, which is from the Harvard Center for Developing Child, really looking at resilience for kids who've experienced trauma. And the common, the most, um, the, kind of the number one um, indicator of those who, sit, who are able to thrive dis- despite the trauma is that they had one caring, stable adult in their life. Could be a parent, could be a teacher, could be a coach, but one caring, stable adult. But to be that caring, stable adult, we have to care about all of them, that, yeah. that entire child. And that includes their, their, their emotions, it includes you know, um, their friends, it includes this, this whole piece, it includes just embracing who they are. So um, that's, that's why I'm so passionate about this work is because I think that's how you move, move everything forward um, yeah. is that you got to start with the kid in front of you, not the kid you expected to have, but the mm-hmm. kid who's there and say, okay, my job is to help you get your wings and soar. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, I could do this for a lot longer, but we've been talking for longer than people might listen. So we might need to, to wrap it up. Um, thank you so much, uh, not, not just for the books, but for the conversation and for the passion that has been evident as each of you talked about your books and your project and your, your, um, your own fire for doing what, what young children need and what their adults need too. This has been really great. Um, so I will, uh, when we share this episode, we will also share, uh, ways to contact, and ways to find the book and those kinds of things um, so that people don't have to try and write it down now when four of you share it. So, but I, we will definitely get information out to people um, who want to know more. Um, so we're going to wrap this one up. Thank you all for being here. Thank it was you. so great. Thank you. Um, yeah. And you're all welcome back anytime. Just, just send me an email if you've got a book you want to talk about or, or anything. Um, and thanks everybody who's listening. Come back again next week for another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.